This podcast is for investment professionals only. Hello and welcome back to Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and you join me on a very wet June day here in the City of London. I'm sheltering out of the rain. But whilst it's wet outside, the views we have inside this podcast are anything but. Our investment teams have made a significant shift away from risk. We discuss why in this episode. Plus, how the US-China trade war is weighing on their thinking. Are politicians leading us to economic Armageddon, or will markets take it all in their stride? Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio to distill this month's asset allocation are Wenwen Lendroth, lead cross-asset strategist, Paris Anand, head of asset management for Asia-Pacific, and James Bateman, our chief investment officer for multi-asset. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. Well, let's start with the usual left field question that reveals the real you. This month, can you tell me the one thing that you prefer to do the old-fashioned way? Paris, let me start with you. Thank you, Richard. I suppose the one thing I prefer today to do the old-fashioned way is reading. Uh, I've never been able to get on board with e-readers. I also actually prefer hardback books as well. And given that I, I travel a lot, means that I'm, I'm normally carrying a, a excess baggage. Excess baggage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. When when? How about you? I'm going to talk about something a little bit heavy, which is moral values. Um, I'm reading a book called uh, The Road to Character by David Brooks, and it's about some 20th century figures. Um, They embody um, characteristics that are really centered around civic values and improving society, but without seeking celebrity. So old-fashioned civil uh, values um, for you. And James? Well, Richard, you can uh, rely on me to take things from the deeper meaningful to the shallow and superficial. So I would say make cocktails um, because I couldn't resist the pun. Excellent. Okay. well, I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. Now, let's get to the um, asset allocation, the house view as agreed across all of the asset classes. Uh, When when take us through it. There were some significant moves this time. Yes. um, At our asset allocation meeting, we've decided to go um, decidedly more risk off. And even though the underlying economic indicators are decent, we are concerned about trade war impacts as well as valuations. So specifically um, in equities for the near term view, we've gone from neutral to underweight Um, within government bonds. We've gone from underweight to overweight in the near term. Over the medium term view, we've gone from underweight to neutral. And then within corporate credit, we've gone from overweight to neutral, both in the short term and the medium term. So uh, in sum, this reflects our more uh, defensive posture, given the risks that we're facing. It sounds pretty risk off, doesn't it? Um, Paris, going underweight equities um, in the the short term, at least, that's quite a significant move. It is. And I, you know, from my perspective, it could be looked at in some ways as a position that reinforces a kind of risk off perspective. But actually, when you think about what has driven markets and especially equity markets uh, over the last few months, it's really been linked to that dovish position that the Fed has, has taken. So even if, for example, you had a more constructive uh, view on the macro economy, which I, which I personally do, that if I look at what markets are currently pricing in today, which is actually further accommodation from the Fed, if that fails to come through, then that in and of itself will be quite bearish for market. So I'm, I'm, I'm very supportive of the view from that perspective in a sense that, you know, not, not just if, if we, we end up in a risk off environment, but actually if we end up in a, in, a, in a tightening environment that we don't expect. Okay. And James, we're talking now about the house view, um, which is made up of views across the, uh, the teams, across the um, asset classes. 
as head of multi-asset, does it reflect your views at the moment? Uh, it broadly does, yes, Richard. So I think you know the, the timing and the nuance is slightly different within multi-asset. So we, to, to continue my, my flippancy, we did sell in May rather than June. And a lot of that was, I guess, random timing of meetings. But I think so also we getting, gone we'd already gone underway equities yeah, yeah. in May. And that reflected similar arguments that, you know, on the one hand, the macro data looks OK and actually could be good. But the reality was markets had got ahead of themselves. Um, we were worried a bit about valuations and we were very worried that this sort of trigger of the Fed was only going to ever be to the downside, not to the upside. And I'd like to pick up that view that James reflected on on valuations, because for me, that is one of the common denominators around all of these decisions that we've taken. So you look at the the house view that kind of when when is laid out, and you can say it, it reflects in totality a, a risk off position. But actually, look at the underlying decisions, and I think the one thing that supports them all is the fact that we are seeing little value in many of the asset classes across the market. So that's uh, that, that, that's one way of looking at the, the issue. Because one of the things that struck me is that um, the FLY, the Fidelity Leading Indicator, which comes from your team, um, James. That's looking remarkably positive now, having been in the doldrums for as long as I can remember. Um, it's now hurtling into positive. It uh, is. Territory. Well, great. It is. So what we'd say on that is, you know, on the one hand, it looks superficially very good. Um, on the other hand, there are probably two main caveats. One is that macro data doesn't drive markets. Um, there's a connection, but it certainly doesn't drive it. And maybe that macro acceleration is well into the price in markets already. Um, the second issue is almost by definition, leading indicators are trying to predict the future. And there are reasons why you'd believe it and the reasons why you might have some caution around it. And therefore, we'd say that the extent of the positivity it's showing at the moment is is probably higher than the reality. And when when um, the discussions that got us to, to this point, um, what was probably the main thread that you remember from that? Well, we're spending a lot of time analyzing the trade war. And I would say that this is something that's not necessarily captured in fly. Um, and things can happen on such a short notice now with Trump tweeting about the trade war and escalating the situation on May 5th. So this is new information that wouldn't necessarily have been captured in fly, but it has huge ramifications for what will happen throughout throughout the rest of the year. And I think, you know, when, when, when we think about positioning and we think about sort of exogenous risks like geopolitics, trade war, etc., you have to kind of relate those back to valuation and Paris's point that, that when valuations look reasonable, the, the sort of downside risk to, to some unexpected news flow, maybe Trump increasing tariffs further or some, some escalation there, it's a worry. It's not a major way on, on risk assets. The problem is when valuations are looking a bit stretched, um, the downside risk is really quite high. And I think we're in that position. The reason we're risk off partly is because there are clear binary downside risks that could be quite big on markets given valuations. Paris? And one of the most interesting things that came out in our discussion we, was we sort of dissected the shape of markets over the last few months was really the the non-follow-through uh, in terms of flow. So even though market action has been very positive, we haven't seen the kind of flows towards risk assets that would give you that security that this is something that, that didn't sort of feel fragile. So exactly as, as James said, whether it's it's trade war, whether it's something else, there was just that feeling of fragility around the bull market. A lack of substance um, uh, uh, to it as well. Um, I suppose another thing that's um, fascinating at the moment is a remarkable turnaround in signals from the US Federal Reserve, which until recently was um, implying that there would be um, a hike on the uh, horizon. And now it's indicating it'd be willing to cut interest rates to offset any damage from those trade wars and ignoring inflation that might be coming from um, the, the trade wars when when. I mean, that, that that's 
a remarkable turnaround, isn't it? It it is. At the end of 2018, uh, the market was pricing in a few hikes for 2019, um, and at this point, we're looking at um, a total of 80 basis points of of cuts priced into the uh, Treasury markets. So it's been a very rapid turnaround. And I would say that this is partly due to the very quick pivots in policy that do come from the very top, President Trump. So the signals around U.S. inflation have been pretty muted year to date, um, and the Fed is doing some work in terms of how they want to analyze it going forward. From a personal perspective, I do think that inflation is set to rise because of the tariffs and because of the tight labor conditions. But this is a question that is out there in the market that people are trying to answer. It'd be a surprise, I suppose, if inflation didn't rise because the prices are being passed on to um, American consumers. But let's have a, a moment to think about the impact of the trade wars themselves on on economic growth. Earlier, I spoke to markets research analyst Ian Sampson, who gave a relatively upbeat outlook on the impact of this diplomatic dispute. Welcome, Ian. Um, I know that you've been looking into the impact of the the trade war, whether it is a war yet or not, between uh, China and the United States. And as long as the impact of this trade war remains confined to the US and China, um, you think it won't be the killer blow to to the rest of the world? Why is that? Well, looking at some of our estimates of the impact of even the worst case um, scenario of 25% tariffs on all uh, Chinese exports to the US and Chinese retaliation. We think over the next two years, that probably takes off 0.2% to 0.3% uh, from US GDP growth. Um, and clearly more in China, perhaps more like 0.5% or even one percentage point next year. And that's meaningful, but it's also small enough or manageable enough that other policies, so not trade policy, but fiscal policy and credit policy can offset it. So if it does come to pass, those, uh, those effects that you've set out, how should people try and understand the impact that they're going to have, let's say, on, on the US economy? Well, one good way to think about it is that the US consumes about seven and a half billion barrels of oil uh, every year. That's roughly costs about $480 billion, say, uh, depending on what the oil price is. Uh, and that $480 billion is very close to the total amount of imports that the US takes from China. So if so you... It's, it's, it, just to explain, it's buying as much oil as it does goods and anything else from China. So that they're roughly equivalent. In a sense, yes. So if you think about a 25% shock to the oil price, that's about $15 higher on oil. And the tariff is is basically a price shock. So fifteen dollars higher on oil, it does hit growth. Certainly, it's a higher input cost, but it doesn't leave people screaming um, that we're about to get a, a major recession. And so, for me, that's that's the comparison that I'm making in my head. So we're, we're able to weather um, the uh, the ups and downs of oil prices, and we're, we're kind of used to that. We should maybe think about um, tariffs in the worst case, even in the worst case, as um, being some a similar sort of experience. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's a good start. Great. So less damaging to the US. What about data from China? What's that telling you about its ability to cope with the effects of a trade war? So we have seen or we saw going into the start of this year a significant slowdown in Chinese data. But actually, um, since about February, things have stabilized to perhaps slightly improved. Um, And most of that slowdown was actually related to fiscal and credit policy 
that started from China domestically almost a year ago now. If you think how much it slowed as a result of that fiscal and and credit policy, that also gives you a, a sense of how much leeway they have to re-stimulate the economy to help counteract some of the effects of the trade war. Do you think they will? I think we're already seeing um, a significantly increased stimulus out of China in the first quarter of this year. And given the, the increased tensions, the, the chance of that extending even further um, has only risen. So that's uh, Ian Sampson. And um, earlier he was saying that the impact of tariffs is roughly equivalent to oil. I have to tell you that sitting here in the studio, Wenwen was shaking her head somewhat. You, you don't agree. Why is, why is that, Wenwen? Well, I am more pessimistic on um, trade war impacts versus oil. I think that when oil goes up, you have beneficiaries like EMP companies and oil producing countries. There are periods of time like 2006 through 2008 or 2012 through 14 when oil prices went up and it did not constrain global growth. On the other hand, trade wars, I think that most people would agree that the impacts are just broadly negative and there aren't really any winners, only losers. You know, coming out of the I trade think Mr. tensions... Mr. Trump thinks he's winning, hashtag winning. There or are yeah. political <laughs> wins to be made. You are absolutely right. And this, this is so important um, to consider. But in terms of economic impacts... Uh, trade tensions lead to tighter financial conditions, number one, lower business and consumer confidence, number two. So eventually there has to be a negative impact seen in the real economy because of trade tensions. And, and, and Paris, um, Ian had a, a fairly rosy view mm-hmm. as a result of um, his analysis. Um, what, what do you think are the greatest risks uh, to that? So I think the first risk, if I if I pick up on the one sort of point of optimism that when we're made, which is that there are political wins to be had, I actually think that maybe the political wins to be had from moves like this are probably less than people think and certainly less than, than President Trump thinks. And, and, the, and the logic goes as follows, is that you throw up in the air the terms of trade between two significant economic blocks and you think that they can be resolved in the kind of time frame that mirrors the, ti- the time frame of the inauguration or the, or the kind of the launch of the, of the issue. And then what, you, what happens, though, is that when you're thinking about, and it's true, as, as true of Brexit as it is true of the, the China-US um, trade war, is that the devil is all in the detail. And that detail is painstaking detail that takes far longer to, to sort of work out. So, so what might seem like a political win in the, in the uh, beginning might actually see political capital being worn down as you go through the process. And you make the comparison with Brexit. And surely, if you wanted to see an example of where throwing trade deals up in the air and then hoping you're going to be able to sort it out before they fall down, here in the UK, we've, we've shown that that isn't um, as simple as, as people think. Exactly. And you can, also, you can also count the political cost of that to, to, to the Tory leadership. I think the other point that I would make is that whilst I think that the, the context that Ian puts around it um, with with the oil price uh, makes a lot of sense. That is presuming that you're dealing with a relatively bounded problem. So you've got the, you've got an oil price, you can see the impact on it. The issue for markets with something like a trade 
war is that it's very hard for us at this point to bound the problem. You can even bound it making some assumptions about US versus China. But actually, when you think about this as a as a sort of a trade strategy more broadly, what about the impact on Mexico? What about the impact on Europe? That's the issue for markets is you can't bound it in the same way. And James, how are you looking at how this might unfold in terms of impact on corporate earnings? I think there is quite a lot of downside here. And I just want to pick up one thing on, on the oil price, which is, of course, you can presume um, with the oil price that, that over the medium term it is range bound. And therefore, even if it's high one year, it might be revert the next year. The real risk is with, with tariffs is you could have a situation where the, the current level becomes the low, not the high for the next five years. Um, and that clearly is is economically very consequential, particularly if that, as Paris says, moves globally. So, so what do we worry about? We worry about, you know, generally risk assets, as we've talked about, but we also worry about specific areas and sectors. So what worries us are what could be um, impacted by surprise or maybe not surprise tariffs. So we look maybe slightly clever in saying that we've been underweight LATAM for some time um, on the on the basis of, whilst we quite like emerging markets, I'm underweight LATAM within that on the basis of concerns about around tariffs in that area. We're also very short um, European autos. And that, again, reflects the same thesis that, that there is a and there are other reasons to be short there as well, in our view. But but from a tariff point of view, it's a very easy pain point. In, and what we see from Trump is put tariffs on first, negotiate later, which is you know very much the opposite of a traditional approach, which is leave them as a latent threat some point down the line. But don't don't. So, so you could see overnight tariffs put in place on something that then brings Europe to the negotiating table. So we're talking here about uh, tariffs almost in isolation. We've touched on possible um, stimulus from the, the Fed, um, you know, markets pricing in uh, four cuts. What else, Paris, could authorities um, do um, in China, for example? How likely would they be to, to step up their attempts to, to keep the Chinese economy ticking over if this really does begin to uh, to bite? So, so my view is that I see most domestic governments, central banks, continuing a stimulatory path for their domestic economies, which is why I'm more optimistic about the global macroeconomic picture uh, than many of my colleagues. And I think that they do this in part because they understand the political and economic costs of pursuing a more nationalistic agenda. So it's almost the quid pro quo. But I do see the weight of that stimulus as we look forward being much more on terms of the fiscal side than on the monetary side, simply because, you know, monetary policy, I think, is largely played out as a stimulus and has actually resulted arguably, in some of the imbalances that have led to the focus on the nationalistic political agenda. How does that then play out when you've got governments that um, are pretty much indebted around the world at the moment? They're going to have to borrow more um, in order to to fund this sort of fiscal stimulus. Um, That's a worry, isn't it, Wen-Wen? Yes, I think that, you know, we feel that fiscal spending is going to increase from here, basically to satisfy um, populism, which has emerged around the world. And this is going to elevate debt to GDP ratios. And and how does that set us up, James, then? So, you know, perhaps I'm less worried about that than most people. And I think the reality is that the response to the financial crisis was not that well thought through in the sense that it prevented an even bigger crisis. It didn't necessarily worry about imbalances, as we've talked about. And and I I know I've alluded to this in previous podcasts. My biggest concern is social cohesion and and the gap between rich and poor. And and actually, really, it's the gap between the upper quartile and the lower quartile. I mean, there's just been this enormous um, bifurcation of winners and losers driven partly by monetary policy and other things. And the 
the sort of greater than lost decade for individuals, uh, a lot of individuals in society, um, needs to be redressed. That has to be done through fiscal policy. It's the only way to do it. It seems a very small price to pay to issue more debt to do that. And I actually think markets would be accommodative and positive on that move done prudently by the right sort of politicians. Paris, do you agree? I do. Uh, And I think, look, there there are a couple of points I would make. One is that when we think about this um, ratio that people quote, which is debt to GDP, that is a that has kind of limited explanatory power because you're comparing a, a stock, which is the the quantum of debt with a flow, which is which is GDP. Actually, if you look at the the quantum of debt versus the cost of servicing the debt, actually debt servicing costs are very low at the moment. So the affordability of 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 larger um, of a larger balance sheet, but is, that could is, change. I mean, we're talking just now about inflation rising as a result of tariffs. That you're going to see a significant bump. Uh, so so again, my personal view on this is that because because of the conditioning around inflation, because of the conditioning of, of, of bond markets, that both bond markets and central banks will be very slow to, to pick up on this. And I also have this view that it is harder and harder to measure the modern economy. And hence, the views on inflation, the published data on inflation may not give you that accurate picture on what's actually happening at prices underlying. So I'd like to draw an analogy to where we are today, back to the U.S. in the 1920s, 30s and 40s. The level of inequality in the U.S. right now is akin to what we had in the 1920s. That was followed by the election of FDR, who introduced the New Deal to get people back to work. Um, And so what we're seeing from the progressive left in the U.S. today is the introduction of the Green New Deal and FDR-like policies. Um, But ultimately, that isn't what solved the problem in the U.S. of inequality and slow growth, etc. It was World War II. Um, So looking at it from sort of a broader perspective, we may be heading for a larger type of a reckoning. Um, It is recognized that inequalities get solved or cured in a way by either war or disease. But on a more positive note, we also think that a third industrial revolution could get us out of this rut. Well, I rather hope it's that rather than the uh, the, the apocalyptic um, versions that, so um, that you're, you're referring to there. James, do you do you share this um, this concern? You seem both both you and Paris seem to be significantly more optimistic in this um, conversation. Well, it's hard than, not than, to be not to, not to seem more <laughs> optimistic than Wenwen. So so look, you know, Wenwen's right. I mean, the interesting thing, of course, is is you know, the timing of sequence is different in the, you know, when FDR was elected versus the Great Depression. If we draw the parallel of 08, we're in a different timing sequence. There is no getting away from the fact that large seismic events can unequivocally redress balances. And in fact, you know, World War One had a similar impact in a lot of respects. But there are two very simple 20th century examples where that's the case. The reality is there are lots of other ways to redress balances. And I think, you know, political will to do so, and, and, and some actors uh, clearly, clearly favour that, some don't. But it is politically possible to deal with that. And Paris alluded to it's harder to measure the economy. i say something else. It, it, it is a lot easier to measure and understand sentiment and what's making people unhappy and what's creating unrest. And I think, you know, that in itself is probably something we would say differs from the past, that the rise of Twitter, everyone having a voice is, in, in, you know, in some respects terrifying, in other respects absolutely wonderful. But you can really understand and measure what people's pinch points are, what their concerns are. And it's very clear what the problems are now. Um, and inequality is very, very solvable through through effective fiscal policy or at least reducible through effective fiscal policy. And I think governments are waking up to that. 
on that uplifting thought, uh, we move now to um, our parlour game of hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Um, let me come to Wenwen first. What are your hot cakes? So I'm going to go long populism and short neoliberalism. The trades through so which... Continuing your pessimistic <laughs> view on things, but hit, hit me with it. So the two trade ideas um, on the long end, I would go long populism by going long volatility. Um, so going long the VIX index, either through ETFs or options, or simply by de-risking one's the portfolio. The index. Yes. How appropriate. Exactly. Um, and then the second is my expectation that inflation in the U.S. is going to rise uh, more than people expect on a combination of the tariffs and the quite tight labor market. So um, I would go long real duration in tips um, as a play on inflation. And then on the short end, I would uh, play populism in the U.S. by um, going short or underweight healthcare stocks, specifically managed care and pharma. And then in the U.K., I would short a basket of U.K. utilities, which are obviously a focus of the Labour Party here. Okay, if they uh, if they come to power. Okay, James, how about you? Your um, hot cakes. So, so I think I'd have a short to medium term hot hot cake and a slightly longer term one. So the short to medium term is gold. And and I think that really reflects the general sense of risk aversion in markets. Um, the fact that gold has bumped along not doing much for some time. And the fact that it is both a store of value and an area for, for investors to move in, in panic. So um, from that point of view, I think I think gold. On the other side, I do think um, we have to slightly confront the, the reality that anything that is truly green, truly um, environmental, um, is likely to have a medium-term outperformance. And, I, and whether that is, going back to our, our love of alternatives, wind and solar leasing, uh, whether it's something a bit more direct in the equity market, those sort of areas medium-term, I think, are you, you almost cannot ascribe their long-term value because... Um, the, the world is clearly shifting in that direction. So green hotcakes. And your hot potatoes? So I think my, my, my big hot potato, um, not necessarily for environmental reasons, though though you, you could bring, build the argument, is oil. I'm concerned about oil. I'm concerned because I think the, the macro data is, is looking too good and the reality is going to be less good. And I think supply constraints that were there, if we look through to next year, are probably lessening. And you put the two together um, and that feels like a downward trajectory for oil. Paris, let me come to you. Your hotcake. So I've got two uh, hotcakes. You've all got um, two this, this week. <laughs> exactly. Um, both of them contrarian, both of them in some ways aligned to this view that we are going to move into a phase of, of, of fiscal spending and that the world in general is going to, to perform better macroeconomically than, than consensus. So um, I think sterling is undervalued. I think it's I think it's structurally undervalued versus on a trade-weighted basis and certainly against the dollar. And also in, in terms of the US, um, I think that there's been this long bifurcation between growth and value. If we have more uh, infrastructure spending, uh, if we see more uh, wage inflation domestically in the US, which will, I think, lead to a better consumption picture in, in the mid-economy. I think I think there'll be a lot of names in US value that are worth kind of dusting down and, and having a look at as a result. Add your hot potato? Um, so I'm, I'm short the dollar medium term. I do think that the, the kind of issuance needed to um, support the infrastructure spending and, and the fiscal spending will, will put downward pressure on the dollar. And then secondly, kind of more topically, 
Um, I do think that one of the things that we're learning from from reading the newspaper is the risk of uh, holding illiquid positions in in liquid uh, traded vehicles. And I I think I do, so you're referring I do believe- to just in case people aren't aware, in the UK we're talking a lot about Neil Woodford and um, his funds that are um, in trouble at the moment that have been gated to redemptions. Exactly, and, and he's invested a lot in illiquids. Exactly, and I think I think we what we've seen you know over the last few years is obviously the popularity of of ETFs, exchange traded funds, um, which offer you know instant liquidity to, to their holders. Um, but I do think that as you uh, dig into some of those funds that have been launched, there are some that hold actually relatively lower liquid uh, positions. And, and I, I think that that is an area that I would I would be looking to go maybe short. Maybe trouble ahead. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, Paris. And I hope that's given you listening an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just speak to your Fidelity contact. Thanks very much indeed to my guests, Wen Wen, James, Paris and Ian. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.